verse 1. As we look at the world around us, I think some things are pretty obvious to us. One of those is that our world is without peace. And this is no new revelation. I mean, from really the garden forward, peace has the the absence of tranquility has been the statement really we could put over the whole of the world. It's an absence of tranquility, an absence of peace, an absence of the lack of worry and anxiety. And many times in history, people have made bold statements. Statements like, the war to end all wars. The great war. You know, the war we will fight, and then there won't be any more wars. That was World War I. By the fact I call it World War I, you know there is a world war because there was no absence of anxieties, conflict. There was still a lack of tranquility in the world. World War II was horrendous. Matter of fact, some people have postulated that as we get more modernized and as we have more unity through bringing nations together in organizations, we'll have less conflict. But all of that was dispelled in the 20th century when at the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st century, we came to realize that more people had died at the sword and at the end of a gun in the 20th century than had ever died in any century before. The world's not becoming more restful, more tranquil, more at peace, the world is becoming more and more in the absence of peace. Now, at the global level, we say, well, yeah, we look around and we can see, like even today, Russia and Ukraine are in this titanic struggle. I mean, Russia, this huge nation, has come down and, and conquered, begun to conquer this much smaller, much weaker nation. We can look out there and say, and when they look here and say, well, but things are pretty good here. Until you turn on the news, and then you see that in our cities and in our, even our rural areas, there seems to be a lack of tranquility, right? People are dying. People are being shot to death in our streets. Schools are being invaded by armed gunmen. Little children are literally spreading their friend's blood on them and faking their own death to survive the onslaught. The lack of peace. The lack of wholeness. The lack of unity. We look at our nation and we see it as people hit the streets to protest all manner of things. On both sides of the political aisle, constant arguments, debate, and rolling in this Constant feeling of, we can't get away from the anxieties and the struggles of this life. Opioid epidemic has hit this country in a way that we've never seen drugs hit this country. And this isn't mainly, mainly attacking our poorest class, but rather our middle class. More middle-class males die from opioid overdoses than ever before in our history. Why? Because the life in this world is filled with conflict, disappointment, anxiety, strain, stress, burdens. But we can even look out there and in Calhoun County and see these things that are happening you open up the Anderson Star and you read daily, or now it's three times a week, I guess. You read where another person has died from an overdose. Another person has died at the end of a gun. Another person is being imprisoned because they've done something horrendous. All of this lack of peace at the macro level. At the more local level. But here's what I want to ask you. 
Isn't it true of many of you in this congregation and some of you that have even assembled today in this building that you feel like there's a lack of tranquility within your own soul, within your own heart? You're disturbed. You can't find relief. I want us to look at Romans 5, 1. And I want to preach a sermon entitled, Peace with God. Peace with God. Now, we're going to read 5, 1 through 11, but don't worry. I'm not going to preach that entire paragraph this morning, much to your relief. I'm only going to preach verse 1. <laughs> but I want to read this entire paragraph to keep us in the flow of the text. Let's read what the Apostle Paul writes here. In 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that. That suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul has just, has, has just finished a powerful section on the justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in the close of 425. He just finished this great section. Starting in verse 1, 18 through 320, Paul told the condition of all mankind. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of all men. And then he sets out to show that not just the pagan, but the religious person, not just the religious person, but the Jew themselves are under the wrath of God. He laid out his case that all of humanity is under the wrath of God. And then in 321 through 26, after that long pregnant section of just darkness, this beam of light shoots forth. Because he lays out the fact that even though we were born under the wrath of God and have behaved as those under the wrath of God, there is good news. There is good news. And so in 321 through 26, he lays out the good news that by grace, God has acted to give us his son so that in him we might have the righteous law of God fulfilled and receive by faith the righteousness which we could never earn. This is the good news. And then in 327 through 425, he takes apart one after another the arguments that would come against this kind of teaching. The arguments that many of you might have, and the arguments that definitely the Jews had in Paul's day, and even the arguments that the Apostle Paul himself probably had before he met Christ face to face on his road to Damascus. The bulk of that is accomplished, this dismemberment of the arguments against the gospel is accomplished by looking at the life of Abraham, which is what he did in chapter 4. 
It's not works. It's not circumcision. It's not the law. God counted it as righteousness when he believed God. Last week, Pastor Corey helped us kind of bring that section to an end by telling us that the reality is that the whole of the Bible, especially he focused on the Old Testament, and especially those words, counted as righteous. Those words were written not for Abraham, but for us. Mainly for us, God wrote these words. In Romans 4, 23 through 25, we read, But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. This great reality, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been declared just before the Holy God is truly overwhelming. God did in Christ what the sinner could never do for himself. And he did not just pay for his sin. No. No, God counted those who believe in Christ righteous. That means that we stand before God clothed in the imputed righteousness of Jesus. So that when God sees us, Christian, what he sees is righteousness. Christian, hear that. Not in the future. Right now, when God the Father looks at you, he sees you as righteous. You need to let it sink in. Beyond your head into your heart. I need to let it sink in to my heart. Don't rush past this truth because this truth is what brings salvation and adoption and glorification we're going to see in Romans 5 through 8. We're righteous in our standing before God because we have been clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. How? Because Jesus lived the sinless life we could never live. According to the law blameless. He then was clothed with our filthy rags, filthy with our sin. He was clothed with that at the cross. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And on the cross, God the Father was pleased to crush God the Son under the penalty due for our sin. And after being in the grave for three days, God raised Jesus from the dead because death had no hold over him. The Father was satisfied fully. The penalty was paid. It is finished, is the words over our penalty, our sin. Jesus has paid it. This is how we are counted righteous in Christ. We believe God, and He counts the ungodly righteous. We believe God, and He counts the ungodly righteous. So Paul opens this next section of the book of Romans by writing these words. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the opening line of a whole new large section within the body of Romans. It focuses on the results of our justification. Through faith alone. Now, some would condense it down to five, one through four, justification. Five through eight, sanctification. But that's just too simple. It's just way too broad. It doesn't do us any good. Here's what I would rather us think of in chapters five through eight. I would rather us think this is the result of our justification. Justification in Christ lays hold of reconciliation with God. Justification in Christ lays hold to being made holy in Christ. Justification in Christ lays hold to our glorification. You see the difference? It's not just that justification is finished. Forget all about that. Now, let's live a better life. That's the way it often gets preached. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, therefore... 
He's building off of what he's already said. Justification is through faith in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone. Therefore, this word connects what he's about to say to what he's already said. It doesn't leave justification in the dust. It brings justification over into all the rest of these passages. And if you don't see it that way, if I don't see it that way, this is what we do. We say, okay, I got on my knees. I asked God to save me. I got up from my knees. And now I've got to look at this rule book and figure out what I'm supposed to be doing every day so God will keep me saved and I'll keep myself saved. It's this work we're doing with God. And this is what Paul says. Forget all of that. That's death. The law was satisfied for you and for me in Jesus Christ. Amen? Don't pick it up again. That's what Paul says. Stop picking it up. Oh, but Paul, I need it. I got to have the law because that's how I measure myself. Stop. Don't measure yourself by the law. Therefore, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Christ alone, what's the standard for the Christian? Christ alone. What's the standard? Not reaching back into some law, resurrecting and saying, okay, here's my to-dos, let's get after it. No, looking at Christ. What should I be doing now that I'm a Christian? Look in faith at Christ. Well, it's got to be more than that. No, it's never more than that. If it ever becomes more than that, it's not the gospel anymore. It's not good news. It's condemnation because with the Spirit living in you, your sinful flesh also wrestles against that. And that war inside of you will bring you into a state of belief that says, I am not a Christian because I keep sinning. And you'll be just as confused as the person who's never heard the gospel. Listen, you need to hear this. You have been justified by faith in Christ alone. The only thing that can receive this kind of justification is an open, empty hand of faith. That's it. You put one work, one thing in your hand, you cannot receive it. You're staring at me. Like, we're such hard-headed people, aren't we? We're just like our fathers, the Jews. Man, they heard Paul preaching like this, and they left from the synagogues and from the church meetings, and they said, Oh my goodness, that Paul, he's radical. These people fisting to go sin. They're just going to live this wicked life now because he's just set them free from anything doing with rules. You know what Paul said? Paul said, you think you're going to stop them from sinning by resurrecting rules? God proved the point for 3,000 years that's not going to work. From the garden to Christ, he proved There is no rule that they will not break in their heart and in their actions and in their minds. We got to come to Christ with empty hands of faith, clinging to him and him alone. Our reality is, is that we have been made righteous in Christ. How can I be certain that justification will not be withdrawn in the future, you might ask? What gives me confidence that in the end God will not draw back salvation due to my weakness and my sin? I want to have confidence, Carlton, in Christ, but I just don't feel any confidence this morning. Well, based on the truth of this text that's right here in front of us, there is all the reason in the world to have confidence in Christ. Our feelings don't matter. The lies of Satan are lies. And the shame of sin is dispelled by comprehending in our heart the truth of 5-1. So let's unpack it. 
First, we have been justified by faith. I'm not going to take all of our time going back over the doctrines that we've already taught, the doctrine that we've already taught, been teaching for weeks now, but I do want to make a note of the fact that Paul writes our phrase in verse 1, and I'm going to get a little technical. Corey will tell me I didn't, shouldn't have done it, but that's good for Tuesday when we're having sermon collab. He writes this, we have been justified. In the aorist tense. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that it's a past action. We have been justified. Well, God might withdraw my justification. He can't. He did it already. At the cross. Not when you knelt down on your knees and prayed to him. He justified you at the cross. If he would withdraw his justification of a true born-again believer, then he would spit in the face of his own son on the cross. The act of justification is done, finished, complete at the cross. And he raised him up from the dead to show it to us. That's what the text said last week. That's what Paul's saying right here. It has been done. And furthermore, it's not just in the aorist, it's in the passive. Which means somebody else did it to me. I didn't justify myself. God justified me. Doesn't that make you feel hopeful? Doesn't that give you something solid to put your feet on in the morning? I'm not becoming righteous because I've done something today or yesterday. I am righteous because God said so at the cross. And he raised up my Savior, and in him I'm alive. Now let's go get after the day. (laughs) Now let's go live our life. This means that Paul is saying we have been justified by faith according to someone besides ourselves. We didn't do the action of being justified, but the action of being justified was done to us. And based on this teaching and the teaching of the previous chapters, we're confident that the action was done and completed by God himself. Isn't that good news, Grace Fellowship? Therefore, we have been justified by faith. Justification was done to us by the grace of God through faith in Christ alone. He writes it over and over again, and I'm saying it over and over again because he knows we are all prone to forget the magnificence of this truth. It is through faith in Christ that we are declared righteous before a holy God. The only way to receive Christ is through the empty hand of faith. That's it. We cannot bring anything to God so that he will accept us, but instead we come to him to receive all that is necessary for our salvation. Therefore, since we have been, since we have been justified by faith. Second, we have peace with God. Now to our modern mind, this seems like a strange word. In my introduction, all of you were nodding. You feel this way. You feel this way, this lack of tranquility. Carlton, I appreciate that so many wild pagan folks out there in the world needed to be at peace with God. But you have to understand that I have always loved God. Believe it or not, I hear this sometimes. I've always been trying to please God with my life. And because of this, I'm not sure... This first result of justification really matters for me. I mean, that's for the pagan folk. that were They were obviously against God, but I wasn't. I want you to hear what Paul is saying to you who would say that. We have peace with God. He's talking to you. You who would say, oh, I've always loved Jesus. No. No, that's not true. You haven't always loved Jesus. You needed to be brought to peace with your Creator. Others of you might say, yeah, I mean, you obviously don't know me very well. This would be the Christian. If you could see inside of me and in my heart and hear the voices in my mind, then you would know that I don't have peace. I constantly feel anxious, worried, afraid, honestly, 
peace is the furthest thing from my day-to-day living. I don't feel like I ever have any peace. But listen, I want to say it again. I want to say it slowly. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Let's address both of these misconceptions of Paul's understanding of the results of justification. First, it is not true that only folks that live like pagans, God-denying lives out in the world, need to be brought to peace with God. God's Word describes very clearly all of our condition before God in our natural self. Listen to these words. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the course of this, this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul's talking to the church there. And he's saying, you Christians, you were just like them. Colossians 1.21 says it very simply and succinctly. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds. Again, talking to the church, he says you were an alien to God because you were alienated from God because of your hostility in your mind and the evil deeds that flowed from that hostile mind. The point is simple. You and I were born enemies of God. I don't care how clean of a life you lived, how good of a life you're trying to live today, in your natural self, you are an enemy of God. We were alienated from him. Acting on our fleshly, rebellious desire. And this means that we were at war with God. I don't want to stop there, but I want to press the fullness of this truth. It's fearful, this truth that we're dealing with right here. God was at war with you. You see, when we say, oh, we were at war with God, that's like the little child at war with his daddy. Even greater gap, though, right? Any of you who have a toddler know they want to go to war with you. Corey often sends our pastor group text, Hudson, at war with his daddy, right? And, and, and he, man, he runs into Corey wide open. Wham! You've all been there if you've raised kids, especially boys, but all kids. They think, even at like 18 months, two years, I can take him. Right? They are at war with you. But Corey's not worried about that. That's like a gnat hitting him in the kneecap. He kind of looks down like, oh, Hud, why'd you run into me, man? Come on. I picked you up. That's not a good analogy of what I'm trying to tell you and what the Bible says. Flip it the other way. Corey is at war with Hudson. That's not a gnat flying into a kneecap. That's total annihilation for Hudson. And the gap between Corey as a father and Hudson as a little boy pales in comparison to God of the universe who created all things being at war with you. That's the fearful truth that we're presented with in the Bible is that God is on the warpath against his enemies. He's coming with justice in his wings. Before you believed in Christ for your justification, you were an enemy of God, and God was your sworn enemy. The second objection to peace is 
the objection of the subjective daily experience of feeling, feeling peace. This is a possibility for the believer. The first one is remedied, right? I mean, we're not at war with God. God's not at war with us if we have believed in Jesus Christ as our righteousness. He's not at war with us anymore. But you still might be suffering under the daily experience of a lack of tranquility, a lack of peace. That's possible for all of us. We can experience tranquility, tranquility of peace, by the way, in our daily lives. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace, the little words matter so much. What does it say? And the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Our text doesn't say of God. Therefore, since we have been made justified, we have been justified by faith, we have peace of God? No. With God. Our text is dealing with God. It is peace that is necessary at the objective level so that subjective peace is even possible. Nobody in the world ever feels that peace until they have peace with God. I don't care how calm they are on the outside. Listen, I don't often like to give person. well, sometimes I do, but I don't usually tell about myself a lot, but this might be a good place for it. I recently went and started uh, seeing a Christian therapist, and um, as she evaluated me, after years, 25, 20 plus years, close to 25 years of ministry, lots of life struggle, tons of things have happened, she starts describing anxiety to me without using the word, and she just trapped me. Good therapists are like that. Like, she just laid all this stuff out there, and I'm like, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, that's it. I feel that way. Yep, you got it. And I'm thinking, like, that's the high-end responsibility guy, you know, like, that's, that's the executive. And then she turned and looked at me and said, your whole brain is consumed with anxiety. Like, no, I don't have anxiety. But when I get honest before God, because of all the things that I touch and that touch me on a daily basis and over the course of many years, if I'm honest, I often, unfortunately, live without the peace of God operative in my life. I do. And so when I studied this passage, which we assigned months and months ago to me, you can't imagine the tears and the relief of hearing this truth. And I hope it hits you the same way as we start zoning in on this. What does it mean to be at peace with God? Hear this, Christian. The lack of the daily feeling of peace doesn't mean you don't have the reality of the objective peace of God. The rock on which our peace with God is had is the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our Lord. And once through faith alone we have been justified by God, then we forever have peace with God. Forever. He has settled the matter. He has declared peace with us. As a couple stands in front of me at a wedding, I often say these words. That I promise, with or without the presence of romantic feelings. Some of you, I've done your wedding, and I say that, and you say, somebody knows why I say, why does he say that? Because guess what, every day... If you ain't a married folk yet, you ain't going to wake up feeling romantic. What's going to carry you that day? The covenant reality of the marriage is going to carry you through marriage regardless if you have the feeling or don't have the feeling. If you invert this and say, well, I'm seeking a feeling first, and then I'll worry about peace with God later. You'll never have peace with God, and you'll never have the feeling. But if you and I, brother and sister in Christ, can get our feet on the rock of God made peace with us in Christ, we will often have the feeling of peace of God, the peace of God which guards our hearts. Let me drive it home with some biblical theology. When Adam and Eve were created, 
and placed in the Garden of Eden, they enjoyed the objective peace with God that we're talking about. Peace with God. And the subjective peace of God. They had both things. I mean, God was not at war with them, but was in full fellowship with them. Because they were in fellowship perfectly with God, they enjoyed the feeling of settled and joyful friendship with their Creator. And flowing from that, that vertical reality, it also meant they had tranquility and the absence of conflict in their personal relationships. Eve was at peace with her husband, and her husband was at peace with Eve. Why? Because they were at peace with God. They had tranquility, perfect harmony, wholeness, shalom. They had shalom. That's the Hebrew word. It was truly the perfect marriage, the perfect home, the perfect experience of the fellowship of God, the Garden of Eden. When Adam chose to sin, he immediately in that single action declared war on God. He was immediately not at peace with God when he sinned. And this played out on a practical level because he no longer felt settled and joyful with God or with his wife or with creation. This is why anxiety took over in the garden. And they began to hide and they began to cover themselves with fig leaves. And they tried to hide their shame. They knew they weren't at peace with God anymore, immediately. And they also knew they were at war with each other. They knew it immediately. When God showed up on the scene and brought them out to him, notice in the exchange, the woman blamed the snake, creation. The man blamed the woman, marriage, and they were both actually blaming God. You did it. You made the creation. You made my spouse. You did it. That's the evidence of the lack of peace. They didn't have it with God. They didn't have it with one another. They didn't have it with creation. This is why anxiety took over in the garden. Destruction, death was in its way. The loss of peace with God led to total loss of trans- tranquility at every level. The punishment was given to them. They were removed from the Garden of Eden. And the war with God grew greater and greater and greater, which led to more and more loss of the experience of peace between man and other men. The Old Testament is a historical account of this war against God and against our fellow man. But even more than that, we're confronted with the fact that God is at war with mankind. This is why we have recorded for us over and over the command of God to destroy entire civilizations. Wipe them off the planet. In Genesis 6, God showed that he was at war with the planet. How? And with mankind primarily. How? He flooded it. He killed everybody except the eight people who found grace in his eyes. That was it. Egypt took his people, put them in captivity over 400 years, and then God went to war with Pharaoh and Egypt. Did he not? And through the ten plagues, he crushed them, and he brought that great army to the Red Sea, and he took his people across, and then he crushed that army. He killed every one of them, including Pharaoh. Why? Because God was at war, and it broke out into the history of mankind. The Canaanites, as Joshua and the people went into the land, don't we find God saying, go into that city? It is committed to destruction. Kill every man, every woman, every child, every animal. They are all holy unto the Lord. You read those kinds of texts without what I'm talking about? The fact that we have declared war on God and because of that, God has declared war on us. They don't make any sense. Even lost sinful men know you shouldn't go kill innocent women and children in war. 
But God can. Why? Because those people were at war with God. And God, like Corey over Hudson, is crushing them under the weight of what they deserve because of their sin. The Old Testament, in one sense, is a book filled with the recording of the great war against mankind by God because there is no peace with God. The prophets point us to the hope of peace in the end. Listen to these words from the prophets. Isaiah 9, 6-7, through 7, For us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of what? Peace. Ezekiel 34. Listen to what God said to, through Ezekiel. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David. Not the historical David of the Old Testament. This is a big D David, Old New Testament. A son of David that's coming. I will set up my shepherd over them, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts for their land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods, the return of shalom to the earth, to the prince of peace, based on the covenant of peace. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in the land. Listen to me, church. God, through his prophets, after... A whole history of the annals of God making war against mankind, crushing one after another after another. The prophets begin to see the hope of the future and say the Prince of Peace is coming. God will send us a child. He will give us a son, and his name will be Prince of Peace. Listen, God is going to make a covenant with us through his servant who will sit on his throne, David. He will be our shepherd. And look what happens. The garden returns, does it not? The trees are going to bud and give fruit, and the land is going to increase, and we're going to be secure. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. They shall dwell securely. None shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them. And that they, the house of Israel, that is the, the new Israel, the church, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord God. The prophets began to see it in Ezekiel 37. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave my servant Jacob where your fathers live. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be the prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. The new Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Micah 5, 4 through 5 says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their, what? Peace. He shall be their peace. All of these Old Testament realities are like a thread running through the whole of Scripture because Adam and in him all men declared war on God by rebelling against him and sin. God had declared war on mankind. This is seen in many judgments of God acted out in the events of like the flood and the events of the destruction of the nations that the Israel, Israel's army defeated. We clearly see that God is waging a wrathful, vengeance-filled war against the sin of man. But equally woven into the Old Testament is the hope of a coming peace that will be the covenant 
of peace. This covenant of peace will be enacted by none other than the Prince of Peace, the ultimate son of David, who is a shepherd over the one flock of God. He is going to secure all of us in his land forever. And there will no longer be the enemies of God reigning over us. We will reign forever in him. Because we are his children, we have the keys to the kingdom. This will lead to tranquility, the Old Testament says. The tranquility we long for in our hearts and our minds on a daily basis. So when the New Testament opens with the story of the coming of Jesus Christ, listen to how the angels announce his coming to the shepherds. After millennia of God warring against sinfulness of mankind and promising peace to his people, this is what the shepherds heard. Glory to God in the highest. Forget the Charlie Brown version. And on earth, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Did you catch that? Not peace on earth, goodwill toward men. No, no. Peace to those with whom he is pleased. The shepherds heard that God had granted peace. They didn't heard that there was a hope of peace anymore. He granted peace by sending his son to make peace at the cross. That was what was coming. And that's what Paul's writing right here. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we, we have found the pleasure of God. How? By being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have peace with God. <laughs> when you take little verses like this out of the Bible and you just use them for your own whim, understand you're missing the depth of all that's in the Scriptures. From Genesis to this point, God has been building a case and Paul delivers it masterfully in one little pregnant sentence. God has made peace with everyone who is justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. Christian, you have peace with God. And God is at peace with you through His Son. It is an objective reality that is given to us as a result of the fact that you have been justified through faith in the finished work of Christ. There is no need to fear war with God anymore, Christian. God is not at war. We stand before God justified, and He has declared peace with us through the Prince of Peace. We live in the covenant of peace. Those who are without Christ today, you need to know, God is at war with you. He's at war with you. When you read the Old Testament, one of the things you should see is that in every event of God's justice being poured out in the things like the flood and the crushing of the army of Egypt and the crushing of the peoples in Canaan when the Israel's army go in and all these people are being destroyed, you need to see in that your future. You need to see in that little break forth of God's anger and wrath against that small populace of people, you need to see that that's what's coming on the day of judgment for all who do not have faith in Jesus Christ. You need to come to Christ today because today is the only day you're promised to have salvation and therefore peace with Him. This is it. If you don't come, then the hell you will inherit is worse than any Old Testament judgment you could have ever read about. The first fruit of justification through faith alone is peace with God. But there are more fruits to come. There are more fruits to come. This is just the beginning. We're just getting started. Listen, let's work backwards now as I close. What does it mean when we are justified by faith alone? It means that we have peace with God at the core of who we are. So now, I'm not at war. I can have the peace of God in my daily life. All I have to do is recount the gospel to myself constantly. I have peace with God. 
And so my marriage isn't going great. It didn't happen in the way I wanted it to. But you know what? I'm going to pray to God because I know he loves me. He gave me a son and he justified me by his son. And so he will carry me through this hard spot in my marriage. I can have peace. The peace that passes all understanding guards my mind because God is with me. I can look at the violence and the drug abuse and all of the death that surrounds me. And although it breaks my heart, I can look at it and I can say I can be an agent of God's peace to these people. I can be an ambassador of God's reconciliation to these people. I can go and sit with them and cry and weep, as so many of you do, in hard situations. And then I can say, listen, as hard as this reality is, let me tell you, there's a harder reality, and that is that if without Christ, you're going to die eternally. But there's hope in Jesus. And the peace that you have will then go forward into the world to say, you can have peace with God. You can have peace with God. And it works at the local level. It works at the national level. What's our answer to all the raging in our streets? The gospel of Jesus Christ, nonetheless. When we take a cold water to them and pieces of bread to them and we give them clothes and we give them shelter and we look for education and better solutions for their tomorrow, we better have this gospel rock at its, ba- at it, at its base. Without it, it's worthless. But with it, it's everything. We go as ambassadors into this nation filled with strife at peace with God. And we even look at the international front and we pray and ask God for peace. In those places. Why? Because we want the gospel there to flourish and thrive. We want Taylor and Ananias and all that will be raised up through them to go into eastern Ukraine and go into the eastern Bloc countries and to bring the message of reconciliation. God has made peace through the blood of his son with you. That's what we want. That's what we long for. Not just the absence of conflict. No, we want the reality that we no longer have conflict with God to reign forth and pour out from this place to the ends of the earth. Let's rejoice. Let's celebrate the fact that God has granted us peace with him through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has granted peace to us, church. Let's all stand together. And the band's going to come, and I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing an old hymn. And this old hymn is one of my favorites. It's one that, um, gosh, it just means so much to so many of you. We're going to sing, It Is Well With My Soul. And we can sing this song because God has given us peace in His Son. And we have peace with God. Let's pray. Father, as we close this time in Your Word and we prepare our hearts to go into this world, which is so undone, so broken, so lacking, the peace that they so long for, God, we go as ambassadors of peace. We go with the message of peace. We go with the Prince of Peace for the glory of the covenant of peace. God, that is our mission in this world, to bring the message of the gospel to the hurting world. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's all sing together.